This is Chapter 125 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we dive into the CIA's use of books as weapons during the Cold War, plus a story about sisters set at a secret supper club. You could say Lara Prescott was born to write her debut novel, The Secrets We Kept. The book's plot centers around the now declassified CIA mission to distribute Dr. Zhivago in Russia, where it had been banned for subversive content. As it so happens, Lara shares her name with the love interest in the Boris Pasternak novel. Her mom was a big fan of the 1965 film. She recently stopped by our studios to chat about her much-talked-about novel. You weave together several storylines in your book. There's the backstory of the novel of Dr. Zhivago. There's the CIA's attempt to get it distributed back in its homeland of Russia. There's the fight for equality for women. What was your original inspiration for the book? The original inspiration for the book was definitely reading about the CIA mission, um, which I my father had forwarded me an email in 2014, and it was this Washington Post article where the author had petitioned the CIA to release these documents about the Zhivago mission, and had been this rumor for 60 years that the CIA had a role in printing and smuggling Dr. Zhivago back behind the Iron Curtain where it was banned, and I thought... This is just absolutely incredible. And I had to read every single CIA.gov document about it. And like reading those documents, they're all redacted. And I just thought this is the perfect venue to fictionalize it. So that's the inspiration. But, you know, I was named Lara after the heroine in Dr. Zhivago um, by Boris Pasternak. So I've always had kind of a lifelong interest in Zhivago. I was going to say, if there's anyone born to write a book about it, it would be you. Why did your parents give you that first name? I think it was mostly my mother's doing because she loved the David Lean film. She loved the novel. She's a real big Russian novel lover um, and just anything that has something to do with Russia. And so they named me Lara. And I didn't really have a connection to the book until I read it in high school. But I did watch the movie as a child. I think we'd always watch it on Christmas or when it was you know winter time. And my mom had this musical jewelry box that played Lara's theme. So it's always been this part of my life because it's it's a name people often mispronounce. And I always said I hated it growing up. I was like, why couldn't you name me Laura with a U? Um, so people don't mispronounce it. But now I feel kind of lucky that the name led me to the book. And so did you go back and reread this book after yes. <laughs> after the article just to, to get more familiar with it? Yeah, actually, right after the article, I started reading it again. Um, and I had read it numerous times over the years. And it's definitely changed. Um, every time I've read it, I've gotten something different away from it. But right after the article came out, I wanted to know what was so subversive about this book. Because I think reading it, you don't necessarily pinpoint why this book was banned or why this book could have been used as a weapon. So it was really interesting to see, you know, the CIA's take that this could be this huge weapon against the Soviets during the Cold War and then reading passages that um, would have been um, what made this book so subversive. I think one of the crazier things is this whole idea of books as weapons, Mm -hmm. because I don't think most people think of books in that way. But this is something that the CIA really did try to do, and not just in relation to this book in particular, right? That's right. They had what they called the books program, 
Um, and they smuggled, I think it's estimated almost 10 million books by the time it started up until the 90s, um, books and pamphlets behind, you know, in Eastern Europe. And they really did believe that books had this incredible power to change the world in ways that um, other things couldn't just because you're so embedded in people's stories and you can walk in other people's shoes and that can have a profound impact on someone. And so it wasn't as if, you know, they thought this book is going to get them to, you know, rebel and take up arms or, or something like that. It was almost this long game. In fact, they called it the long game of just incremental um, questioning of, of why freedoms have been denied. And it's interesting, too, that we're having this conversation during what's Banned Books Week. Yeah. Because this was a banned book. Yes. And many people don't realize that because it was never banned in the West, but it was banned where it was written in the Soviet Union. Um, and so I always say, you know, Zhivago is like one of my favorite banned books. Um, but banned books are still happening today. Um, they're still being challenged in the United States. Books and writers um, are being challenged all over the world, sometimes imprisoned because of what they've written. And I think this important to know that this isn't something that's happened in the past. This is something we still need to be cognizant today. And I think that's why Banned Books Week is such a great opportunity to talk about why these books are so important. And going back to Zhivago, didn't was it Khrushchev who came out and said that, oh, maybe we shouldn't have... <laughs> done this yeah years later he actually read it (laughs) (laughs) and he said oh yeah this isn't so bad basically and you know maybe we shouldn't have made such a big deal because it became this huge political headache for them um mostly because boris won the nobel prize in part from his poetry but also dr zhivago and of course this was just this big win for the cia because boris had to turn it down he was forced to turn it down from the state and so it just created almost like a political nightmare um, for the Soviet Union. And I think a couple years later, when he finally read it, he said, oh, yeah, maybe this wasn't so bad. <laughs> so let's talk about your research. Mm-hmm. What did you what did you undertake to get to the, the CAA backstory? Yeah, I read, I think, close to 100 books almost. Um, anything to do with the early days of the CIA, um, women spies. Um, Boris Pasternak, um, Olga Evenskaya's autobiography that she wrote. Um, but then I also traveled to Russia and I went to Peril del Kino, which is where Boris Pasternak lived. I went to London and Paris and just to kind of get a sense of what it was like to walk those streets um, and see the houses where you know Boris lived or the apartment where he lived. And so it was a combination of, you know, those CIA.gov documents, um, books, talking to experts on the Cold War in person. Um, It just was like so much stuff that led into the book. You mentioned earlier those redacted Mm -hmm. memos. Mm -hmm. Is that what got you started thinking about? The people who who write them, the women who were behind them? Yeah. And and kind of coincidentally, I was trying to write this book from this third person omniscient narrator, and it just wasn't singing at all to me. It just felt like this is a good idea. This is an interesting part of history, but it didn't feel important. And the more I looked at these documents, the more I wondered who were the people that type them, who are the people that know what these redactions are. And I started learning all about um, kind of the the clerks and the secretary pools of the early CIA and what it was like for women to work there. And they end up being this Greek chorus almost in the book. Yeah, I started writing it from the voice of the we 
which was a new I had never written anything like that before and I thought it just as a group as this entity they found power in in the group in this world where women were often demeaned or used in ways that um forced them to band together and then I thought it was interesting that I could later break out some of those women from the group and 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 highlight them and they're the we that's referred to in the title yeah yeah well the we so there's a lot of uh secrets in the book um (laughs) yes there are (laughs) the cia secrets there's secrets that olga Ivanskaya kept um to prevent boris pasternak from um being killed um there's secrets that um typists kept from each other love secret love um so it's it's kind of everybody that i talk about in the novel these the women whether they were the secretaries or secretaries who were also spies mm-hmm. or, or women who were spies, were they really sort of like unsung heroes of the CIA that were now just, you know, some of their stories are now just coming to light? Yeah, I think that the more I learned about early women in the CIA, you could even trace some of those women back into World War II. And when they worked at the OSS doing foreign intelligence, women like Virginia Hall, who's recently um, becoming more known in the public eye, this woman who was a hero during World War II, um, parachuting into France and leading French resistance fighters up to the, the battle lines. And when the war was over, unfortunately, there didn't seem to be as much of a place for them in the CIA except for behind the desk. And I was really fascinated to learn that and fascinated why I didn't know about some of these heroic women um, that existed. And I think that it seems like their stories are being told more and more, which I I just love so much. And they all seem to be really whip smart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think they were these women that got to to that level um, and chose to do careers first were whip smart. I mean, they came from Vassar and Radcliffe and Smith and and they were highly educated um, and oftentimes overqualified for the work that they were given. You mentioned briefly that one of the secrets is a secret love. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give too much away, but that is also something that is based in history. Yes. Yeah. The more that I was researching into the early days of D.C. in general and what what it was like to work in government in D.C., I learned everyone knows about the Red Scare um, during the 1950s. But I learned so much about the Lavender Scare, um, which was in this this way that the government persecuted its own employees if they were suspected of being gay or lesbian you were immediately fired um, sometimes you were outed in the newspaper um, and lives were destroyed um, because of it and I never wanted to write this good guy bad story of the Americans versus the Soviets because I wanted to show even though the Americans were using books to to prove that the Soviets didn't have freedoms they also were taking away freedoms from its own ranks So I know that this book, you know, it's gotten a lot of attention in the media. You had a huge auction over it. Reese Witherspoon picked it for her book club. What has that been like for you? It's been surreal. This is my (laughs) my first novel. I think I won't even fully process it until I'm back home just working on my next novel because it's been such a whirlwind in the last year since 
Um, you know, I sold the book and all of these things have happened that it's hard to wrap it around my head of just me sitting by myself in sweatpants writing and all this other <laughs> things happening. So which I think is a good thing, but I think it will take a while for it to actually seem like it's happening to me. So I know we have a lot of spy movies out there with male leads. I mean, there are too many to count. Mm -hmm. This seems to be a counterpoint to all that. Will we ever see this on the bigger little screen? I hope so. Yeah, I think either film or television. Um, I, you know, I, the rights have been bought. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Um, I could definitely see some of these people um, coming to life and, you know, kind of giving that additional audience and a, a visual aspect to the novel. And there's also really cool. something about the 50s and the clothes and the yeah. style, right? <laughs> yeah, and I am a huge fan of Mad Men, so I'm, that is definitely a clear influence, I think, <laughs> at least on the Western side. Um, and just, you know, the amazing work that TV show did um, and stylistically how amazing it was to watch. Um, so... I think there is some echoes in, you know, the 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 Madison Avenue advertising agencies in the 50s and the CAA in the 50s and the boys club and what it means to be a woman in those environments. And I think nowadays there's still some boys clubs around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I worked in politics. So, yeah, it's true. You know. <laughs> so what do you know what you're going to work on next? I'm researching a few ideas right now and writing down scenes, but I'm still choosing between two. All right. So, well, we'll have yeah. to stand by and wait. That's quite the tease. Yeah, that's a secret. Yeah, <laughs> that's a secret that you'll have to keep. Yes, there, right? just for now. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking with Lyra Prescott. The book is The Secrets We Kept. Thank you so much for coming by and talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. Family, food and forgiveness are all central to the Second Chance Supper Club, the newest novel from women's fiction author Nicole Meyer. With most of the action taking place at an underground restaurant, the story will make you hungry, all that delicious food, and craving a phone call with your sister or female bestie. Nicole fills us in on her third novel. It's a sister story. The premise is two sisters who have been estranged. Uh, one is a broadcast journalist in New York, and one is a Michelin star rated chef in Arizona. Um, they've been estranged, but um, the younger sister, Julia, does something that puts her career in jeopardy. So she kind of has to tuck tail and leave town, and she goes seeking solace with her older sister, Ginny. Um, and they have to reconcile their relationship, but what Julia doesn't know is that Ginny has been busy running an underground supper club, and the only way that she can stay is if she helps her sister run the business. Now, the book's only been out a few weeks, but you've already had quite a response from readers. Yeah, it's been great. It came out September 10th. Um, I've had a really nice response. I've had some nice press and readers have been writing in. Um, it's funny, I, I didn't expect it, but readers have been um, saying, because this is a sister story and it's about forgiveness, um, readers are saying, you know, maybe it's time that I forgive my sibling or maybe it's time I reached out to someone in my family that I've been estranged to. So it's been really nice. And I'm sure as an author, the biggest compliment you could get is that something you've written really resonates with someone in their personal life. It does. I mean, that means so much to me when someone um, takes it to heart and can relate to the characters and can relate to what it feels like to have a family member whom we love, but yet we don't agree with their decision-making process. You know, it makes for a tough relationship sometimes. 
Do you yourself believe in second chances? I do. I truly do. I don't think it's ever too late, no matter your age or your position. Um, But sometimes it takes, you know, unusual circumstances to throw people back together and force them to look at their own behavior, you know, kind of shine a light on their own behavior and behavior towards others. Now, as much as your book's about these two sisters trying to repair their damaged relationship, it's also about underground dining, which I don't know that a lot of people are familiar with. Why don't you first tell us what exactly that is and then tell us what inspired that part of your book? Um, I actually went to um, an independent film festival in my town a couple of years ago. And one of the documentaries that I saw was a film about a chef who was running an underground supper club. He was a Michelin star rated chef and he was running sort of this clandestine um, restaurant out of his apartment. Uh, I never heard of the concepts before and I was fascinated. So when I left the theater that day, I was actually taking notes on my phone thinking, oh, this could be a great idea for a book. Um, And then the more research I did, um, I found out that these are uh, kind of a trend in the bigger cities, although it's spreading throughout smaller towns now, where you have kind of a high caliber chef, um, whether they're Michelin star rated or not, who's either fed up with the restaurant industry or just really wants to be more experimental and strike out on their own. Um, And so they'll be running these sort of speakeasies, whether it's in um, a wine cellar or the back back room of a real restaurant or out of an apartment. And it's kind of word of mouth only, you know, obviously food enthusiasts are the ones who attend. Um, It's sort of a set menu and it's kind of a way to build community among food enthusiasts. So it's a pretty cool idea. Did you visit any of these places to to kind of flesh out your research? You know, not when I was writing the book. Um, since then, I've had people come up to me and invite me to supper clubs. And um, <laughs> I've, I actually connected with someone who works in, in Los Angeles, um, who is on like, a, I think she said it's like a three-month waiting list. But yeah, I definitely watched a ton of YouTube videos, and I just did a lot of research online and talked to people. Um, that's the beauty of the internet, I guess. But um, I, I definitely... I'm a bit of a foodie, so I love uh, these kinds of stories, and I love the research. It was so much fun. You know, as I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think that there's nothing like physical, backbreaking, hard working with your hands that can really help break down barriers between people. You just get so exhausted, you can't, you know, <laughs> you can't help but work through whatever else you have. Yeah, I think that in the book, I tried to use cooking as, you know, a bit of a vehicle. Uh, for the sisters to exactly what you said, to break down and to come back together. And it's cathartic, right? I don't know if all your listeners cook, but it is something that can be a stress reliever and you can put your mind on something else, you know, away from your worries. And there is something about standing at the counter and chopping the vegetables and simmering the sauce that really um, can be healing. You know, food can be a healing thing. And I really do think that comes across in this book between the way it's prepared and how other people enjoy it and the way it just brings people together, whether they're eating it or cooking it. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, a lot of times at these dinners, it's a common table. So strangers come together, you know, with a a common um, adoration for food or just the process, and then it builds community. So I really like that idea. Now, in terms of your setting, you couldn't get more different than the hustle (laughs) and bustle of New York City and then the quiet nights of the Arizona desert. That's right. I really wanted to pick up these characters and set them down somewhere 
where they were forced to sort of grow roots where they're planted. I really like that idea. And um, at the time that I was writing the synopsis, I was actually on a sabbatical of sorts in Tucson, Arizona, up against the mountains. And I just love the desert. Um, I go to different desert settings quite often. I just think there's something so magical about the sunsets and the landscape and just uh, being out in that type of nature. Um, And I just knew when I was writing the beginning of the book that I wanted to set it in Arizona just because I felt like it's sort of a healing environment. I love that you mentioned, you know, like having people set up and and, and establish roots because that has also, that's almost a little bit of an Easter egg for somebody who reads the book because there is, you know, there's a little bit something about there's a character who's drawn to plants and to flowers and to plant gardens and all that kind of sort of thing. Yes, that's true. There's a young girl in the book. I shouldn't say young girl, young woman in the book who um, is sort of an aspiring either landscape architect or florist. She's not sure, but she's really drawn to the plant world. And I thought that was so much fun to research and, and write about. Why do you like to examine the relationships that women have with each other? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yes, I am a women's fiction author, so I always write about the woman's journey. But for me, um, I find it so fascinating to kind of get behind the scenes and find out why people behave the way they do. You know, there's always a reason for it. And, you know, once we get that backstory, it allows the reader and the writer, I think, to have more empathy for different kinds of personalities and characters because we see that there really is a reason. Um, You know, we're not all the same, but there's sort of that underlying current of everyone's trying to evolve, everyone's trying to grow, but we have different stumbling blocks along the way. Um, And I like to explore that. And I'm sure that exploration is going to play a big part in whatever you're writing next, right? I think so. I think I'll always write about relationships, whether that be family or friends. Um, I really am drawn to that, and hopefully my readers are too. Well, if readers are interested, they can pick up the Second Chance Supper Club. Nicole Meyer, thank you for taking the time and talking to us about it today. Thank you so much. And that does it for us this week. Next time, we speak to the daughter of baseball pioneer Jackie Robinson, who's out with a new memoir. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books for all sorts of bookish content. Until next time, I'm Lisa Chernkovich.